You know, we're in this series in Revelation, and it is the words of Jesus to the seven churches. I want to remind you this morning, and I want to encourage you to remember one thing, that these are the very words of Jesus. It's as if Jesus came and sat down with you and sat across from you and looked you straight in the eye and said, hey, this is how I feel, and this is what I think. Now, these letters that he wrote to the seven churches, these churches were all very different churches. Just like you guys are all very different, and I'm very different. These letters were not only written to these churches, but they were written to us. And they are applicable to our lives today. Now, last week, we looked at the church in Ephesus. We were looking at the words of Jesus Christ to this busy church. You know, a church that had lost its first love. A church that was so busy in their everyday routines that they forgot what was first. So Pastor Matt helped us last week to keep the main thing the main thing. To make sure that we keep above all else our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's above everything else that we may face in our lives. Now I want to show you guys a picture this morning. This is a picture of ancient Smyrna. And it's next to the modern day city of Izmir. Now, I show you this picture just to kind of pique your interest, because you see, when we preach about the seven churches in Revelation, it's very difficult to bring you all the details that we will study and find out in a message of 30 minutes. But you guys can go home and you can research and you can study all about this wonderful church in the city of Smyrna. And there's so many interesting facts, things like, did you know that this is the only ancient city of the seven churches that is still standing? And there's a picture of it right there. Things like in the city of Smyrna, the name Smyrna, you know where myrrh comes from? You know, myrrh that was given to Jesus as a gift when he was born, uh, when he was born. It probably came from the city of Smyrna. There's so, it was one of the most beautiful cities in ancient Greece, and there was a lot of uh, worship to God so that they made the city so beautiful that we could probably not even imagine or see a city like that today. So I want to encourage you to go home and study this stuff up as we go through the seven churches of Revelation. I, wanna, I want you guys to open up the Word and study it and see how, how filled with, with amazing truths for our lives are today. And as we make the second stop in our journey through the seven churches in Revelation, I want you guys to turn your Bibles to the second chapter of Revelations or turn on your iPads, whatever it is that you have. And we're going to be going over four verses. And we're going to unpack four verses. And I mean, but these verses are so filled with instruction and promises for our life that it's just amazing to me how much can be said in just four verses. Starting verse eight, verse 8, it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. As we can see from the scripture, the main theme of this letter is persecution. The very first thing that Jesus says to this church is, I know your afflictions. You know, other versions use words like suffering and tribulations, trials or troubles. Now, when we in the Western world think of persecution, 
We often think of being fired from our jobs for not wanting to work on Sundays or being ridiculed for our beliefs in, in Christ or, or being ridiculed when we go to college and, and everything gets challenged. In a sense, I'm sure that every single one of us in this room has gone through some type of persecution for being a Christian. But what I'm going to talk to you about this morning, uh, what the church in Smyrna faced was much, much more severe. You see, the Greek word for affliction used here is the word thlipsis. And in a literal sense, it means to crush or to apply heavy pressure. In everyday terms, this was the word that they used when speaking of olive and wine presses. You know, the fruits would be put into these presses to be crushed until all the juices would come out. Another way that this term was used was to describe a form of torture whereby a person was slowly crushed by a giant boulder. Now, I know this paints a pretty graphic picture in your minds, but, but this is what it tells us the church in Smyrna was facing. The church in Smyrna was facing more than just a mere setback in spreading the gospel, more than an interruption in their daily lives. It's not like they were sitting by the pool, hanging out and like, oh, I got to go do this. And, and you know, I got to go preach or I got to go do it. No, it was, it was what they faced was determined, brutal opposition, physical torture. And many times that led to a painful death. Now, Smyrna was a city that was loyal to the Roman Empire. It was at Smyrna that the first Roman temple was built in honor of Tiberius. And it was at Smyrna that first accepted the principle of worshiping Caesar. Each year throughout the Roman Empire, every citizen had to burn incense and, and worship the Godhead of Caesar and always say, Caesar is the Lord. And because the Christians at Smyrna refused to participate in this act, they suffered tremendous persecution. And we also see from the scriptures that their persecution was not limited to physical afflictions suffered by the believers. This letter to Smyrna also indicates that they were a very, very poor church. And again, this word needs to be clarified because we're not speaking of people who had to work two jobs just to make ends meet. The Greek word that they used here is used to describe, um, used to mean that it was the poverty in the worst possible state of poverty imaginable. Now, this is a church that has had all of their material possessions stripped away throughout the course of their persecution. History also tells us that because of the rule of Caesar, those labeled as Christians were ostracized and, and they were ostracized from their communities and that by law, it was forbidden to buy from them or for them to sell anything. And so we find a church that is beaten fiercely on all sides. And it is, they are at the point of absolute hardship. And I hope you're getting kind of a picture of how crushing it was for this church and how severe the persecutions were against this church. Now, as if the crushing physical and financial blows against this church weren't enough, we are also told in the last part of verse 9 that the church has also the slander. Another word for slander is the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews but are not. And they have to deal with that now. There were those in Smyrna who professed to be faithful to the true God. Those who even professed to be followers of Christ and perhaps associated with the church and went to the church. They attended the meetings. They said all the right words. They knew all the right answers. But we read that while they were professed to be followers of God, the Bible tells us that they were what? It says that they were a synagogue 
of Satan or agents of Satan. And I share that with you because I think the greatest threat to our church today is those who are actually in it. Those who, whose names are in the books, who attend church regularly, who may even hold church office, but are actually working as enemy agents. They subvert the work of God. They divide the people of, of God against each other. They split churches and they bring hindrance to the work of the church. And how do they do this? Well, the Bible tells us that through slander or blasphemy. The word blasphemy in the Greek is here referring to slanders or profane accusations. Remember, the name Satan means accuser. So those who are working for him are bringing accusation against God's people. So what is happening here literally is that the very name of Christianity was being slandered. The beliefs and the practices of the church were being taken and twisted and distorted and misrepresented so as to perpetuate the intense hatred against this church. Now, this is really important for us today because our churches and our beliefs are under attack now more than ever before. Don't you guys agree? We, we can't really speak our mind about our relationship with Christ or we might offend the wrong community or the wrong political party. We have to be so politically correct if we want to share about Christ or, or, or our testimonies or we run the risk of our beliefs being twisted, distorted, and misrepresented. Now, William Barclay, he, he was a theologian and he studied with some of this persecution that the Church of Smyrna was going through and he lists six ways that early Christians were being slandered. Now, some of these we can't even relate to, but I share them with you because it just shows how people can take anything and just twist it. You know, the practice of the Lord's Supper, this is what they were being persecuted for, you know, communion, with its language about the body and the blood of the Christ or the Lord, was distorted so that the early Christians were depicted as vicious cannibals. The other thing, the, the great emphasis on love, you know, the New Testament is all about love your neighbor as yourself, was turned into a slander that the Christians were given over to lust, immorality, and even incest because of all the talk about love. When a person became a Christian and had to make hard choices about existing family relationships, where paganism held control, Christians were repeatedly accused of breaking up homes. Folks, that's happening around the world, and it's happening here today. With the emphasis of one God in a polytheistic culture, Christians were often slandered as atheists for refusing to believe in the Roman gods. And since Christians only accept Christ as Lord, Jesus as Lord, they could not call Caesar Lord and were therefore subject to allegations of political disloyalty. And lastly, it was Nero Caesar who fabricated the slanderous lie that it was the Christians who had instigated the rioting that resulted in Rome being burned. So what do we have here? We have crushing opposition. We have economic disparity. We have horrible poverty, ostracism, slander, and on top of this, we read in verse 10 that there were to be imprisonments. People were going to go to jail for their beliefs in Christ. These were the daily experiences of the church in Smyrna. And as I speak to some of our missionaries around the world, particularly in Asia, I mean, these are their daily experiences as well. These are the experiences of our brothers and sisters around the world, and, and yet they persevere. Yet they, they, they overcome all these obstacles. 
I mean, how do they do that? Why do they do that? What gives them the courage to carry on? As I, as I studied this, this church in Smyrna and as I read about it, you know, the first thing that comes is, you know, in my selfish nature is that the first thing I think about me, I think about my stand, my conviction, where would I stand? Would I stay true to my relationship with Christ if all of these things were happening to me? Would I stay true or would I succumb to the ways of the world or the pressures that are surrounding me and just go the other way because everybody else is doing it? And I don't have to face this ostrich, whatever it is I'm going through here, because it's a lot easier going the opposite way, but we know that's not the right way or God's way. But how about you? I mean, what would you do is if you walked out of this building, there was people outside waiting to stone you or to club you. What would you do if you arrived at work only to find out that you were being fired because of your belief in Christ? or that your house was being repossessed, or that everything that you have worked for in this life was being confiscated, what would you do if the very person that is sitting next to you right now went to the police and provided some slanderous remarks against you that got you arrested? Or what if they just decided to accuse you of some things that with other church members and, and just damage your character from malicious gossip and, and all of these things that they would say about you? What would you do? And I know that sounds extreme to a lot of us, but I think we have to ask ourselves these questions. We have to contemplate them because we must be certain that our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is capable of withstanding the fierce and crushing blows of this life. You have to ask yourself questions like these because if you don't answer them and you don't answer them right, then it's might as well, and I hope I don't, this is to sound too bad, might as well get up and leave because we're all wasting our times. And maybe we don't see these type of extreme of persecution in our lives. But, you know, I believe there's other ways that Satan persecutes us. There's many ways that Satan crushes the spirit of the believer in our modern society. You know, social pressures like keeping up with the Johnsons, or we can say with the Kardashians, and that we know often leads to divorce, adultery, alcoholism. What about the business pressures that, that, that you all face and that we all face, where business tends to have more power than the government itself? I know that a lot of you have suffered in your businesses because of some integrity issue at work. What about the media? Talk about one of the greatest power sources in our country. Those who tell the news tend to have more power than those who make the news. And how they choose to tell the news determines how you and I hear it, which determines how many, what many people believe. So some in the media report that the Christian community hates the LGBT community. All of a sudden, people start to believe that all Christians hate gay people, which we know is not the case. And you can take that example and carry it on and on and on. And the church in Smyrna, they knew it. They experienced this type of stuff firsthand. And yet they were victorious. Folks, we can leave this this morning with the tools to gain victory over whatever life throws at us. I mean, so what did the church in Smyrna have that made them so victorious, so special? Well, as we study this letter we find that there were four promises given to the church by God, which guaranteed her victory. And these are the same four promises given by God to the church then. He gives to us now. 
It's ours for the take, and we can grab on to these promises and take them with them in our heart and have them make a difference as we walk out of these doors. It is the same victory that is promised then is ours for the taking today. The first promise that we're going to look at is found in verse 9. Verse 9. And notice what, what it says. It says that you are poor, but what? It says that you are rich. You are rich. And the implication here is obvious. That this church is rich in grace and truth. But folks, I believe that it goes much deeper than that. You see, I believe that the church in Smyrna could deal with the complete deprivation they were in because they knew that their God would see them through. So the question that I have for you this morning is, who is your God? In which God do you put your trust in? Because I have to tell you, the God that we serve the God that you and I serve parted the Red Sea, made the lame walk, and the blind see. And it is the same power that was available to them then, is the same power the Word says that is available to you and I if we were to just cling on to it and take it. Folks, we are rich. Now let me ask you another question. Which God is never going to let you down? Which God can never be taken away? Folks, we are told that the church in Smyrna was in the absolute worst financial situation that any church could be found in. And yet, the Bible says that they were rich. They were rich in the knowledge of God's promises to provide for them. There are so many promises in God's word. There are so many promises that we can just open up his word and take those promises for our life and claim them for our lives. I want to share a couple of them with you. One of them is in Psalm 35, 37, verse 25. It says, I was young and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. In all of his years, the psalmist says, he had never once seen God's followers lack in anything they needed. If you believe in that promise, that promise is yours. You can take it home today. Because God is in the business of providing for his children. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. We are promised that our God will supply all of our needs. Every last one of them. Now, he may not always supply all of your wants. He may not always supply more than you need. But you can rest assured that there is nothing in this life, no matter how destitute the situation seems, that God cannot provide for his children. You know, oftentimes we think that it's gold and silver that's going to take care of all of our problems, right? Well, folks, my Bible tells me that where God lives, it is silver and gold are used to pave the streets. Now, let me ask you, are you going to put your trust in the almighty God or in a piece of slab of heavenly asphalt. The word of God promises that God owns all of the silver and gold in the world because he created it. It is his. And if we want to have complete victory in our lives, then we have to realize that God is so much more greater than anything that he has created. Folks, the church in Smyrna was rich. They had the grace of God and the assurance of his provision for their every need. And guess what? We do too. We are rich. Second promise is that you're not alone. 
you are not alone. Now, this promise is found in the first two or three words of the verse. And depending on your Bible translation, it says, fear not, do not fear, be not afraid, or dismiss your fears. Now, this statement is considered a promise because of the one who is making it. I'm not the one saying it. It isn't a human hand that's tapping you in the back saying, hey, don't be afraid, everything's going to be okay. No, this is the God of the universe. The creator of the universe is making this statement that his power will carry us through. His power is the same power that I already talked about. That part of the Red Sea made the lame walk and the blind see. That is the same power that's going to carry you through. It's amazing to me. It is a promise that was first made in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, starting in verse 1, where it says, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. So why don't we have to be afraid? Well, we don't have to be afraid because we can be sure that the God of Israel, that the God of Jacob is with us every single step of the way. This also reminds me of another promise found in the 23rd Psalm. You know, the one I think is very popular. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. <laughs> For those, that's gangster's paradise, folks. That's not the promise we're talking about. No, this promise says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. So if you have Jesus by your side this morning, you can be sure that no matter what you face, you are not going to face it alone. He knows what you're going through. It's not a surprise to him. You're never going to hear God say, oh, I didn't expect that. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Whatever situation you may be facing, you are not facing it alone. And you're going to win because God has your back. And whatever trials or crushing blows come your way, you have the assurance that Almighty God is right there at your side. So folks, you don't have to be afraid. The third promise is that your trials are temporary. Your trials are temporary. And this promise is found in verse 10 where it reads, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now again, our, our human nature tends to focus on the word persecution, and rightfully so. It's telling us that we're going to have persecution, but it is a choice to focus on the word persecution or to focus on the fact that it's only going to last for 10 days, meaning that it's going to be temporary. Folks, what a blessing that the trials that, we'll flay, that we face won't last forever. Don't you guys agree? It also reminds me of the words of Jesus told to his disciples in Matthew 24. Now, as we read the book of Revelation, it talks about end times. And Matthew 24 is talking about end times as well. And starting in verse 21, this is what it says. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. It tells us that the worst is yet to come. And yet he promises that the days of that time will be shortened. 
And he does it because for the sake of the chosen people, that's you and I. The Bible tells us that evil will only last for a season. The church of Smyrna was told that their trials were going to get worse, but they could only last for a certain period of time, which reminds me another beautiful promise found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And I'll summarize it for you. It says, God is faithful and he will only give you what he knows that you can handle. Now, you may not think you can handle it at the time, but as you recognize that the power almighty God is on your side, you can be certain that you can make it through. Which brings us to our fourth and final promise. And this is in the last part of verse 10. And that is that you will have eternal life. Now, I know that we all know that when we accept Christ, we're going to go to heaven, and it's the truth that we have in our hearts and in our minds, but, but I don't really think we, we grasp the importance or what that really means. I think we become so immune to it that we say, yeah, we're going to have eternal life, and let's go on and try to live in this life as best as we can. Folks, and the reason that's important, because let it never be said that God promises to us means that we'll survive every single trial that we go through. Notice the instruction given to the church in Smyrna. He says, be faithful even unto death. Now, I wish that I could say that when God protects us, it means that we become invincible, almost like superheroes. But folks, the word of God doesn't say that. And therefore, neither will I. And I hope that I never have to face death because of my beliefs. And I pray that none of you here in this gathering have to either. But if it ever comes to that, may we hold to that promise given to this church that even though our lives may be taken away from us, yet our future is secure in the hands of Jesus. The promise that even though we may die in this life, yet there awaits for the faithful a crown of life that will never pass away. That is eternity. What a great promise. Folks, we should rejoice in that promise because there is something better that awaits all of us. You know, I still remember a lady that has been going through cancer here at this church. And at the beginning, like everyone else, wanted to beat cancer so badly. And she kept reading her scriptures. And she came to me one day and she says, I found something out that I hadn't discovered before. And she reads the scripture to me. And this scripture is where Jesus sends out his 12 disciples and somehow the 12 becomes 72 and that's how it's multiplied. And Jesus gives them the power to heal the sick and, and make the lame walk and the blind see and, and the disciples are out there doing it and they come back to Jesus and they're so excited and they're rejoicing and they say, Jesus, Jesus, even the, even the demons submit to us. Well, this is what Jesus tells them in the book of Luke chapter 10, verse 20. It says, however... Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Well, this lady, after reading that, she says that whether she beats cancer or not, she would rejoice that, that her name was written in the book of life. And folks, we should rejoice too, because that's what it's all about. In fact, one of the greatest martyrdoms of the church was the Bishop Polycarp. And he served at the church of Smyrna, the very same church that we're reading about today. Polycarp, an old man, was brought one last time before the Roman proconsul and given one last chance to deny Jesus Christ. And what he responds to them is something, some words that have lived on from then for centuries up until now. 
And this is what he said. He said, 86 years I have served the Lord Jesus Christ and he has never once wronged me. How can I deny my king who has saved me? And when the proconsul, because he was older, threatened to burn him at the stake, the old bishop replied, you threaten me with a fire which will burn for an hour and then go out? Do what you will. My purpose is unchanged. And with that, he met his fate. Now, how could he face death and remain unchanged? Because his trust was in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who declared to the church of Smyrna that I am the one who was dead and have come back to life. He could face death unflinchingly because he knew that the one in whom he had believed had gained the victory over death itself. And once we here in this room understand that for a true believer, death is not the end, it changes our entire perspective and we can approach any situation and even death with confidence. We can be certain that there will be persecution. But more than that, we can be certain that in the face of persecution, we can have complete victory. We have victory because we can be sure that no matter what we face, we need to not face it alone. That God is with us through it all and will only give us as much as we can handle. We can have victory because we know that the evil will only be last for a season or a short time. And that God will deliver us from whatever may press in on us. And we can have victory over death because we will inherit eternal life through Jesus Christ. The one for your sake, that for your sake and mine, took the weight of sin allowing it to crush him to death. So I want to leave you with one last promise found in 2 Corinthians. It's a beautiful promise found in chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And it says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You know, here he is describing jars of clay as, as us. We're the jars of clay. And he's using jars of clay because jars of clay are fragile and they're sensitive, and, and, and they're brittle. Yet we have this treasure inside of us, yet we can be broken easily. And then he goes on to say, but we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Can you guys say amen to that? Amen. Folks, we are rich. We are more than conquerors. Do you guys want that victory this morning? Today, in spite of everything that you may be going through, you can claim this for yourself. It starts with proclaiming Christ as your Lord, and then you can claim onto all of these promises, not just the ones for the church in Smyrna, but every promise found in God's word. Now, I don't know what some of you may be going through, but I would imagine that some of you are going through a time that, where you feel persecuted and for whatever trials that you may be going through. You can have victory today. You can take God at his word. This is God's word that we're reading this morning. That come what may, if you want to follow him, you can receive it. You just have to take him at his word. That, folks, is your response. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are humbled again, Lord, by your word for what it represents in our lives, Lord, for the conviction that may 
lie as a result of hearing this word, for the instruction that we may receive as a result of hearing this word. Father, and I know that there are many hearts right now that are taking this word to heart, Lord, and that you're dealing with them accordingly. Father, and as people cry out to you right now and say that they just want to follow you and take you at your word, Lord, I ask that you will respond. I ask that you would provide the means for them to, if it's something that they need to change, Lord, that, that they, you'd give them the strength and the courage to be able to change whatever it is they're facing. Father, if it is healing they are seeking, Father, physical healing, I ask that you would heal them in the name of Jesus, Father, because your word tells us that we have that power in the name of Jesus to proclaim victory over any situation. So I proclaim it right now. Father, if it's a mental healing or emotional healing, Lord, I ask that you will provide the means for every single person, person to find solace and comfort in your word. Lord, mostly I'm asking that as people cry out to you, that you would be their God. That as they put their trust in you, you would just continue to guide them and protect them and work in them and through them, that you continue to just lead them in a path of righteousness. Father, that you would be a light unto their path. And as they take a step of faith, one at a time, one in front of the other, Father, that you would be with them every step of the way because your word promises that. So we claim to your promises this morning. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen.